You're listening to CRST, the podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of CRST, the podcast. My name is Parag Majmadar, and by way of introduction, I am a cornea, cataract, and refractive surgeon, and I practice in Chicago. On today's episode, we'll be focusing on best practices in managing patients with a history of radial keratotomy and those patients who underwent LASIK in the 1990s and early 2000s. On this episode, we have the opportunity to del- delve into this topic, uh, which is very timely. And joining me are three of my esteemed co-contributors to CRST's April cover focus, Drs. Brett Fisher, Hercules Logothetis, and Marguerite McDonald. I'm excited to hear their insights and strategies for addressing the complex issues that can arise when treating these patients. So without further ado, let's get started. Brett, Hercules, Marguerite, thank you very much for taking time to join me today. Uh, can I ask you all to just give me a brief uh, introduction so that we all know who you are and where you're from? Yeah, hi. Um, good evening. I'm Dr. Brett Fisher from uh, Panama City, Florida. I'm a comprehensive ophthalmologist specializing in cataract and refractive surgery. I'm Marguerite McDonald. I'm a cornea cataract refractive surgeon with Oakley Vision on Long Island. I'm also a clinical professor of ophthalmology at NYU in Manhattan and Tulane in New Orleans. Good evening. Thanks for having me. I'm Hercules Logothetis. I'm a cataract and refractive surgeon in the north suburbs of Chicago and a solo MD with one OD practice. Fantastic. Thank you all for taking time to join us today. Um, the interesting thing for at least those of us who are senior ophthalmologists is that we've really had the opportunity to come full circle because we've treated many patients with first-generation refractive technologies like radial keratotomy and LASIK in its infancy. What are uh, some of the things, Brett, let me ask you first, what are some of the challenges that you face uh, when dealing with these patients, and how often do you see these patients coming into your office? Well, you know, radial keratotomy was a procedure that was widely practiced. Um, About 10% of U.S. ophthalmologists were trained to do it at some point. So there are a a large number of uh, post-RK patients out there, and and many of them are now entering the cataract age group. So we'll see these patients that, you know, have the typical complaints that any cataract patient would have. But, you know, in addition to that, they can have fluctuating vision. They can have exaggerated, you know, night dysphotopsias. They can have um, progressive hyperopia. There's there's a number of, of unique issues that have been well described that now when we overlay these onto cataracts can be um, quite disabling. I 100% agree. And uh, it's interesting, this, this age group, um, they're old enough to have cataracts. They They had their refractive surgery in their 20s or very early 30s, um, but they are still sharp. They're with it. They're still very active. uh, And they're, as we'll talk about in a little while, they're very dexterous. They they can still insert and remove contacts. Some of them are already wearing contacts to deal with the irregular astigmatism. So my sort of, um, you know, take on, on seeing these patients in the past has been that Many of these patients were early adopters with, with, with first-generation technologies, and it would seem um, that most of these patients are kind of gotten a taste of what it is like to be spectacle independent. And when it's time for them to have technologies like cataract surgery, 
it would seem obvious that they might be very particular patients. But in this month's episode, Hercules, you, you brought up an interesting point and mentioned that a lot of these patients might actually be easygoing. Now, that seems a little bit counterintuitive to me. Can you explain your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah it, it does seem counterintuitive, but I, I think you kind of touched upon it yourself indirectly. A lot of these people, by personality traits alone, kind of were willing to take the plunge, so to speak, uh, back in the 90s and be the first pioneers of patients to have early LASIK and RK. And so I feel like there must be some subconscious component of people that maybe a little bit open-minded and a little bit more uh, willing to go with the flow. You're correct, of course, in saying that they are used to glasses independence, but especially over the last decade, they've really become accustomed to the fluctuations that we observe with those post-RKIs. And so I feel like a combination of that early personality trait of being a little bit more of a brave pioneer, plus the changes they've been forced to experience in the last decade, has left a lot of the ones that at least I run into to be pretty easygoing in the sense that when I under-promise exceedingly, they seem, they seem to be okay with what I'm explaining. <laughs> no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Brett, when, when you are faced with a patient who is uh, who has had a history of radial keratotomy or LASIK, and they are now at the cataract stage, what kinds of things are you doing to evaluate that patient in terms of what might be the best intervention for them? And if it is surgical, how do you assess what type of procedure would be best? Well, I obviously, you know, agree with uh, what uh, both Marguerite and Hercules have said. And um, I think it is important to assess the patient's desires first and foremost. And, and you know, are they someone that's very disabled? Are they someone that, you know, is asking for help, that needs help? And, and I think it, it really varies, you know, what we're seeing. So if the patients are doing pretty well, I think, you know, as Marguerite will address, there's there is a role for... Um, for either scleral lenses or, or other ocular aids to kind of keep them going. The technology is rapidly evolving in our field as it has been for many years. And so any patients that, you know, are, you know, content to wait, I'm content to wait with them. Um, for those that need help now, though, we do have some great options. Um, I, I have, you know, cautiously done different types of um lenses with these patients um, from standard monofocals to um, in, in a very, you know, stable four cut RK with a large optical zone. I've used a multifocal in the past in, you know, in, in very, you know, carefully selected patients. Um, more recently, you know, EDOF lenses have given us some opportunities to help some of these patients. And now with, um, you know, pinhole aperture technology in the uh, IC8 lens, we've also got another tool to use in carefully selected patients. So I, I think it all comes down to, you know, doing a very careful and thorough examination of these patients, um, doing all the normal kinds of testing that you would do of the cornea to look for irregular astigmatism, to look for um, potential ectasia issues, um, and then doing very careful counseling to set expectations appropriately. Um, it may be that the best choice for these patients if we do surgery is simply a monofocal lens and then something like glasses or a scleral lens afterwards. So I, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all solution for these patients. Well, I think you bring up a very good point, and I think it's important to point this out that not all patients who had radial keratotomy or LASIK in the early days are going to have 
significant aberrations. I think some of the sort of knee-jerk, you know, reaction on our parts is that, oh, they, if they had RK, they must have significant irregular astigmatism, but that's not necessarily true. How would you all deal, Marguerite, Hercules, how would you deal with a patient who had either RK or uh, early generation LASIK, but they're seeing relatively well before their cataract has developed? What kinds of options would you recommend? Would you automatically rule out multifocal lenses? Would you... Um, uh, encourage them? What's your thought process? And I'll start with you, Marguerite. Well, as Brett mentioned, uh, you know, there are some well-centered LASIK cases from the 90s, um, uh, amazingly, and there are some beautifully well-centered four-cut RKs out there. So if they have good optics, you look at their topography, um, the, all their options, all the options are open to them as they would be for anyone else, as long as their ocular surface disease has been treated, et cetera. It's when you get the descendered ablations and you get the 16 cut RKs with the two millimeter optical zone, uh, those, and, and the fluctuating vision, those are the people who are a challenge. So, uh, as Brett mentioned, the aptheral lens is new. It's just being uh, adopted by surgeons across the country, as is the LAL, the light adjustable lens. Um, and our practice is just embracing both at this very moment. So my thought is if they have a tremendous amount of fluctuation during the day in their refraction, the IC8 seems like the logical choice there. Uh, if they don't have fluctuations, then you might consider the LAL because you can really, really, really fine tune it. So that's sort of the 10,000 foot view. Uh, certainly monofocals are still a great choice, uh, especially for anybody with ocular surface disease. Um, you know, the, the, the clarity is extraordinary. We don't have a long track record post-approval for um, some of the other technologies. We will soon. Hercules, how do you handle a patient who's had RK in the past and is experiencing significant diurnal fluctuation? How, how do you, what would you counsel a patient uh, who is experiencing that? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I can kind of piggyback off what both Brett and Marguerite were saying. I mean, the first thing that I'm always trying to understand in any patient encounter is what is the chief complaint? And then you're really trying to figure out how am I going to solve this particular problem? So um, instead of just kind of repeating what Marguerite said and what Brett said, you have to figure out, is the cataract really the problem here or is just something else that I can be doing to solve their overall issue? And so let's pretend you've determined that, you know what, this cataract is actually not the primary source of their issue. You then have to kind of answer the question that Parag's asking is, well, what do I do about these fluctuations? I don't personally do CXL myself, uh, but there's obviously cornea specialists like Parag that are around in my area that do. I think it's completely reasonable to think about things that are not cataract options. So you can think about um, scleral lenses, of course, con soft contact lenses, glasses, and monitoring them over time to see if there is any stabilization. And then, of course, considering CXL as an option for stabilization, assuming that you don't think that the cataract is the solution to your problems. No, that's great. Marguerite, you you are certainly, uh, certainly have the most experience of anyone, um, probably in the world, in refractive surgery. And, and certainly, you've seen your share of patients who've had early generation surgery and now are presenting with various corneal irregularities like Salzman's nodules, 
or as you mentioned, um, decentered ablations and other types of things. What what role do you see for scleral lenses in in this in this population of patients? I think it's an overlooked option. I mean, we're surgeons; we tend to uh, approach the problem surgically, but scleral lenses. Um, are so helpful. By the way, uh, the mention of Salzman's nodules, if they're visually significant, I remove them first, of course, before you do anything else. And that's a pretty straightforward procedure for a cornea person. But um, I I have in the practice close by me, uh, an OD who is a spectacular scleral lens fitter. And he does it very quickly, very easily. And as I mentioned before, these people are still usually dexterous enough, young enough, that they can insert the lens, wear it all day, take it out at night without getting help from a partner. And um, that solves just a host of problems. So if your only option for the person is to put in a monofocal and they still have significant irregular astigmatism, uh, a scleral can help tremendously. You know, there are uh, topography-guided ablations, um, but they're still in development, in my opinion. You know, they're still uh, polishing the diamond there. They're not not as popular as we thought they would be by now because they, they're still being uh, improved and developed. So you can always have that in your hip pocket for the future for the irregular astigmatism, but in the short term, Almost every community has at least one good scleral lens fitter. Yeah, I, I'll echo that too. And I, you know, in our practice, we we do have mm-hmm. an optometrist to or several optometrists who fit contact lenses and scleral lenses expertly. I might add, and and we find that for patients who do have uh, issues with uh, corneal irregularities, decentered ablations, and even ocular surface disease uh, in this patient population, you know, scleral lenses have been have been a, a wonderful addition. In addition to what Hercules mentioned in terms of if they've gotten ectasia, you know, from the RK incisions or ectasia from, from uh, LASIK, um, cross-linking plus scleral lenses has really been fantastic in terms of rehabilitating these patients uh, from visually speaking. Um, the problem sometimes occurs when these patients, you know, then need cataract surgery. And it's really, um, really, um, and it's, it's, it's very heartening to see that there are a lot of new options out there. Uh, Brett, you mentioned the IC8 uh, lens. Um, what, what experience have you had with that in patients who have undergone um, procedures that might have resulted in irregularity? And, and what's been your experience in, in, in terms of how well these patients can adapt to their vision following that, that lens implantation? I was one of the U.S. investigators for the um, IC8 Aphthera trial, and in that trial, we used it in healthy eyes. And that's a different, obviously, subset of patients where it's now being used, I think, internationally in some of these um, eyes that have corneal challenges. And, you know, like I think everyone in the U.S., I'm early in my experience with it, um, you know, probably done a dozen or so patients with either post-RK or early LASIK or corneal scars that were inducing some central irregularity. And um, it's, been, it's been a mixed bag. Um, I'm, I think I'm learning how to better choose which patients will benefit from the technology. I've, I've hit a, a couple of real out-of-the-park home runs 
um, one, one in a post-RK patient that we implanted it in bilaterally that had, uh, you know, just spectacular results. And, and then a few that have been, you know, n- not as spectacular, but certainly weren't, you know, anything that um, I was worried about. So I, I think it's really, you know, a game of matching these wonderful technologies, you know, as Marguerite mentioned, with the individual patients. And the, the Aptera lens is very unique in this pinhole aperture, you know, for a patient with fluctuating vision. It's got a very, very, you know, large defocus curve. It's very tolerant of, you know, a fair amount of astigmatism up to a doctor and a half. And so, you know, if you've got a patient that, um, that would benefit from that, I think it's going to really, really make a difference. Hercules, uh, I think you had some experience with the light adjustable lens uh, during your training. And Marguerite, you mentioned that you are also getting involved in that technology. What do you, I'll let you both answer. Hercules first, what, what, what's your take on how this lens might fit into this patient population? I'll definitely answer that for you. I want to echo something that Brett said, just because I'm a little on the younger side in terms of uh, the surgeons here. I think that it's, it should be overly emphasized that every patient in these situations is unique, and there is obviously no a universal protocol for, for all of these, which is why we're talking about all these great options. And so I think it's critical that younger surgeons coming out of residency and fellowship have access to mentors or fellowship options to, to teach them those things. Uh, with regards to the LAL, uh, yeah, I was fortunate that my fellowship was a site for both the ICA and the LAL trials, so I had a lot of experience observing those patients. I think the LAL obviously shines in a situation like post-RKIs um, in terms of optical aberrations that it is not inducing compared to some of our other premium lenses. And of course, the adjustability component is, is pretty great. Um, the IC8, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad to kind of hear Brett's thoughts on it because I haven't had a chance to use it um, actively in, in practice now. So I don't have much comments there, but LAL for sure, I think is the go-to option in a post-RKI in someone who is very motivated and is still trying to maintain glasses independence. Marguerite, anything to add on your experience with light adjustable lenses or IC8 for that matter? Well, actually, uh, we are just installing the LAL equipment. So none of us have done one yet. It's just going into our into our office and uh, we're all extremely excited about it. Um, it's uh, wonderful to hear Hercules' experience and and to listen to what happened and read the results of what happened in the clinical trial that led to approval. And uh, in our practice, Eric Donnefeld, my partner, has uh, put in, uh, when I spoke with him last week, he had put in about eight of the uh, Theralenses. He chose extremely significantly aberrated corneas to put them in. And last I talked with him, he was, he was happy. He did, didn't give me a, a great deal of detail and it was a very early experience, but he, but he was happy with his results. No, that's great to hear. And, and as I said, it's so exciting to have these technologies. Now, I personally don't have access to the light adjustable lens in my practice yet, and I haven't had the opportunity to put in the ICH. So what advice would you give Brett for someone like me who doesn't have IC8 or LAL, how, how should we be approaching these patients? Talk about the role of intraoperative aberrometry, um, IOL calculations. How, how do you manage those patients or how did you manage those patients before you had some of these other technologies? Well, I, I think that the, uh, you know, the ASCRS calculator is a, is a wonderful resource. I love the Barrett True K formula for these patients. I think the Hagus is, is uh, good as well. Um, 
in in looking at intraoperative aberrometry, I am a big fan of intraoperative aberrometry. This tends to be the area where it can be the most difficult to use, especially as the number of cuts increases. So it's um, it's you know it's a great technology when it's used properly. Um, I, I still want to you know kind of be belt and suspenders, so I'll have all of my calculations um, ready beforehand in case you know what I'm getting from it doesn't make sense. But it, it can be it can be helpful um, on the astigmatism side, you know, inarguably. Um, so, you know, I I think that anybody who has access to monofocal lenses of different types can do a great job with these patients because there's there's plenty of help afterwards um, with either a scleral lens or regular you know soft lenses or glasses depending on you know the state of their cornea. So I, I don't think docs, you know, should be afraid to operate on these patients because sometimes the right answer is simply a monofocal. And, um, you know, I don't think you have to have, um, you know, all the bells and whistles to do a good job. If, if they have a significant visually disabling cat cataract, then they're better off having, you know, great, you know, standard monofocal surgery than, you know, probably waiting and suffering visual disability. Hercules, your same question. How do you approach these patients in terms of IOL formulas, calculations? Do you use intraoperative aberrometry? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been pretty lucky. You know, early, I'm early, my first five years of practice here, so I think I tend to be a little bit more conservative on on my selections in general. Um, I treat them like I treat almost all my normal cataract patients. I get biometries for multiple machines, so I have an IOL master and I have a Pentacam AXL. If I need to, I will repeat both of those. I'll work on ocular surface, of course. And I do recommend to all the post-arc KIs that I, that I also use Aura uh, or Aberometry during the, the surgery. What I've been lucky with is that I generally rely on the Ascris calculator. I look at the Barrett formulas and the other formulas that pop up on my biometers. And it seems like every time I've done this, a couple dozen I've done in the last three years, the Aura suggestion, <laughs> my IOL master measurement suggestions and the Ascris calculator they always just line up pretty darn well. And so I've been really successful just with standard monofocal implants in these patients with a little bit of a confidence boost from Aura and the multiple readings. Um, so assuming the cornea is not irregular, I think you can be incredibly successful with very good education and just monofocals, and they do really well. Marguerite, uh, I'll ask you a question uh, that, that you uh, answered in the, um, in, in the CRST April issue, um, and it's an interesting concept. If you have a patient who's had some type of a progressive hyperopic shift from radial keratotomy, you indicated that uh, you may want to use uh, pharmacologic intervention. So can you describe your experience with using um, presbyopia correcting eye drops for this patient population? Um, I've had a small experience with this, but uh, in the right patient, it can be very helpful. Of course, you know, with the, the only FDA-approved uh, drop at the moment, Vuity, 1.2% pilocarpine, of course, you have to do a dilated exam. And it's helpful to know, uh, you know, that their refraction is somewhere between minus 4 and plus 1 because that's the group that was tested so successfully in the clinical trials that led to approval. So if you know their, their retina is healthy and you know, just say you, usually it helps to give them a sample uh, because the, the bottle is, as we know, about $80 and just explain, try it for two weeks, the mild brow ache, 
will go away. The dim sensation of dimness will go away. So unless you have symptoms of a retinal detachment, and I describe those, then just power through it and see what you think. And I've had uh, just a small series of cases where it has helped. I think this is a fascinating way to use um, that particular tool. And another way we've been able to incorporate it is um, there have been international reports in a few patients with bilateral um, aphthera lenses of some sensation of dimming of vision. And because, you know, almost all of our, our post-RK patients are bilateral, um, there is a tendency to want to use the lens in them. And so we're concerned about these reports of dimming of vision. So in order to test this, after the first eye is done on any of these patients, I'm actually putting now Vuity in their second eye preoperatively after, you know, we've done all the things, of course, that uh, Maurice uh, has rightly um, pointed out. So we're, we're using this as a trial to constrict the pupil in the second eye to simulate the, the pinhole aperture effect before we create it permanently. And so far, that seems to be a reasonable surrogate to screen out um, candidates who might otherwise experience this dimming of vision phenomenon. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Um, one of the things that we, I think, are getting better at, but probably need to still pay more attention to is the ocular surface. Um, Hercules, Marguerite, what, what are your uh, thoughts and, uh, on ocular surface disease and how it impacts outcomes in this patient population specifically? And also, what steps are you taking uh, to ensure that the op- the optimization of the ocular surface occurs before they have surgery? You know, I feel like since residency, the importance of ocular surface uh, pre and postoperatively has really been hammered home by all my mentors. So I feel like th- that, that point for sure is always on my mind with any cataract consult. So I'm always thinking about that. It's, it's not just the post-RKI, it's really any cataract consult. In our clinic, you know, I'm fortunate that I, I have a colleague who's an OD who has an interest in ocular surface as well. So between the two of us, um, we're always kind of scanning for this and utilizing technologies that are available like uh, MMMP9 testing, osmolarity. Uh, I happen to have an HD analyzer that I enjoy using quite a bit. Of course, looking on your on your own for tear breakup time, staining, et cetera. Um, so these are all things that I'm always looking for with everybody. And, and I think it's obviously critical in these patients, especially uh, because we all know the measurements are so dependent on the surface. And of course, their healing and their outcomes dependent on that. Um, and so I think it's something that everybody at this point hopefully knows, and I, I assume they know is especially important in, in these scenarios. And Marguerite, I know you had a strong interest in ocular surface disease for, for many years. So tell us your uh, tips and tricks on, on how you handle these patients. Well, actually, um, I'm the director of the Oakley Dry Eye Center of Excellence, and many, most of my cataract patients come to me through that channel. So... Um, my practice has had an unusual profile in that uh, even after I get them all tuned up, many of them are so dry that I couldn't possibly put in a multifocal IOL. So I do, I do more femto, at, but fewer multifocals than almost anybody in the practice because of the nature uh, of my dry eye population. But um we have uh, some of the same instruments that Hercules described. I'm a big believer in uh, tear osmolarity. That guides a lot of my treatment. Um, I've sort of collected my own data over the year over the years when they hit uh, tear osmolarity of 317, 
or higher, they get on an immunomodulator. And so I have a whole scheme. Uh, and I have found that patients are really grateful uh, if you tell them we're going to diagnose and treat this first and these drugs work very quickly, we'll have you back in two to four weeks. Most people are okay with it. They're, they're glad that you've found this problem. And as we like to say, if you diagnose it beforehand, it's the patient's problem. If you diagnose it after their cataract surgery, it's your problem. <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. Brett, any, any other thoughts on ocular surface disease? I'm sure you, you, you're a very strong proponent of treating it as well. Well, I, you know, I obviously agree with everything that's been said. And I, I think for, for doctors that may have more of a, of a representative population, I think the take-home message should be that, you know, if, if they're so dry that you're having to work so hard to tune them up, you can count on them getting that dry after surgery. And to me, that's been the most important takeaway for me if i'm if i'm just having to really work so hard to get somebody into shape so that they can have a multifocal i, I think you know i'm not doing them any favors because six months or, or so after surgery they're probably going to be right back and 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 unhappy with their results so I, I think you know talking to them about what the likely um, outcome of their dry eye is for the long term is very important yeah, I, I couldn't agree with all of you any, any more. Um, you know, uh, my colleague Bill Trattler and I and several of us published a, a paper a few years ago just looking at patients who walk into your clinic for cataract surgery. You know, what percentage of those patients who never have had a history of dry eye, um, how much, you know, what, what percentage of those patients uh, have issues and, and what's the prevalence of dry? And we found that well over two-thirds, probably close to three-fourths of patients had some signs of dry eye, whether it's corneal staining or to decreased tear breakup time. And it really highlights the, the prevalence of this condition, especially in that population, and how much of an important factor it plays in not only post-operative outcomes, as you mentioned, Brett, but also preoperative calculations um, and biometry and all of those things. And I think it really behooves all of us who are not only cataract surgeons, but we're all refractive cataract surgeons to to really pay attention to the ocular surface. And, and we're, again, fortunate that we have a lot of options these days uh, to treat those patients. One area that um, we sometimes hear uh, might cause problems in patients who have had prior RK or prior LASIK is the connection between being able to diagnose them with glaucoma. So, Hercules, what, what, what are your thoughts on that connection, if there is one, and what, what sorts of things are you looking for and, and can maybe uh, enlighten our, our general audience as to, what, as to what you would be looking out for? Yeah, I think most people um, are aware, of course, that you know, once you've had a refractive procedure, RK, that the accuracy of the IOP measurement has changed, and oftentimes it's an underestimate. Um, and I think also, fortunately, the majority of us who see these patients are aware that glaucoma is never as simple as eye pressure. And it's exactly what I tell the patient. Uh, you know, glaucoma is a fancy word for nerve damage. And there's a lot of variables you have to look at over a period of time in order to identify whether they even have it and whether it's progressing. And so for all these patients, RK or not, and you're always looking at the OCT nerve, you're looking at their visual fields, you're checking gonioscopy, you're looking at their pressures, you're looking at the angle. All of these things matter put together. Um, to figure out where they're at. So while IOP in these patients, and from my perspective, is essentially a gray area and unreliable, I'm confident that a lot of us have access to a lot of these other data points that can really help you manage these patients appropriately. Brett, any other comments on that issue? Uh, I obviously agree. And, and you know, 
I, I think that uh, I, I think that it's going to be more of an issue the the longer we go with a lot of these patients. But I, I think Hercules is summed up there perfectly. In the last few minutes that we have remaining, um, I want each of you to give me your most memorable post RK or post LASIK patient, and and what stands out about that case, uh, and what lessons can you share with our audience? So we've talked a lot about you know pre-op assessments and and the lens selection and whatnot, but we haven't really touched upon during surgery what what tips of course matter <laughs> in these RKIs. I'm, I'm going to get to that um, if we have time. Go ahead. Yeah. 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 So so obviously you don't want to run into that RK wound, and uh, you know we try our best, and unfortunately I got unlucky a couple months ago, and it was an eight cut RK, and I thought I was in the right spot in the middle of the wounds, and. As I'm going away doing my FACO, all the chamber starts acting funny. And of course, I ended up going into one of the wounds. Um, you know, for a younger surgeon, it's not fun uh, <laughs> to, to open up an RK wound in the middle of cataract surgery. Um, it could be a little bit stress inducing. Um, so I just wanted to emphasize that keep in mind, don't ever touch those wounds and be prepared, especially in 16 cut RKs that you may need to make a scleral tunnel. Also be mindful of the IOP of the chamber and the stability of the chamber. So I had a case today, I always drop the IOP for my low IOP cataract setting in these cases. Uh, but in terms of outcome, this kind of goes back to what I was saying in, in the article about easygoing patients. Uh, you know, so this added maybe 15 minutes to my case. I, I sutured up the wound and uh, I, you know, I was monitoring over the, the following week because there was a little bit of a dell in there and it took a while to heal and I had a BCL. But amazingly, this this delightful lady the entire time was just so happy with, with the clarity she had achieved by removal of the cataract alone. Um, she's one of those people that was okay with glasses anyway, but she ended up choosing not even to wear them. So my point is bad things can happen and you need to be prepared for them and be mindful of what can happen, but also be encouraged that fortunately in most of these situations, whether it's post-star care or not, I have found that when cataract complications happen, patients generally do quite well over time. Marguerite, do you have an interesting case you'd like to share? That's a, that was a great one. <laughs> um, I haven't had any RK incisions open up, up on me yet, uh, knock on wood. Um, just that um, I agree with Hercules. These people are early adapters, uh, or early adopters, I should say. They are gusto-grabbing people. They are easygoing, and... Um, I usually end up putting a monofocal in these folks and treating the ocular surface. And they're just so happy and grateful. So happy and grateful. Uh, one other thing, you have to be careful with the LASIK uh, flaps. Uh, I did have um, a technician, an OR tech, pass me an instrument and the patient lurched a little and it dragged across the cornea and hit the edge of the flap. You got you to remember... So there was a tiny, tiny lift at the edge of the flap, which um, turned out to be okay. But, but you have to remember that flap is there and any little thing can rip it up. Brett, I'll have you, you have the last word if you have any interesting parting words or parting thoughts. Well, I'll, I'll take the opposite spectrum. The, the patient that uh, uh, I presented in the print edition, I think summarizes why sometimes it's good to go for it because that was a woman who'd had bilateral eight incision RK and then followed by years later bilateral LASIK and had a lot of irregular astigmatism and um, did great with a pinhole aperture lens. And she's someone that um, was very highly motivated to be spectral independent, had been waiting for that lens to be released and um, 
probably would have done okay with a monofocal, but did not want to wear a scleral contact lens and um, had tried it and just didn't want to, didn't want to do that. So for, for her, it was a real game and life changer. So sometimes we do need to, you know, venture out of our comfort zone and, and do things for our patients if that actually is the best option. Well, thank you all. Uh, that brings us to the end of another insightful episode of CRST, the podcast. I'd like to extend uh, my thanks to our incredible guests, Dr. Brett Fisher, Dr. Hercules Logothetis, and Dr. Marguerite McDonald, uh, for joining me here today and sharing these invaluable experiences, tips, tricks, and techniques and strategies for managing these patients who have previously undergone RK or LASIK and are now being seen in all of our practices. And for me, I think the take home is that we shouldn't shy away from these patients. Uh, we, sh- we should offer them as much as we can with new technologies and be courageous in our approach, but also tempered with a little bit of humility and try to not uh, create more problems for, for some of these patients who are already dealing with some other issues. So I'd like to thank everyone for tuning into this podcast. If you would like to learn more about the topics discussed on this episode, please check out the April issue of CRST at crstoday.com. Until next time, I'm Parag Majmadar, and this has been CRST, the podcast. For more shows like the one you just listened to, check out the podcast channel on itube.net.